from the Mercy One Studio. Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. We are coming to you from these United States of America. I am over here in Des Moines, Iowa, where I'm the Director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and the director of the Zeta Institute. You can check all of that out at mchs.edu. But out there in Pittsburgh, home of the Pirates and maybe the Blue Jays for a summer, what do you do out there, my friend? I'm here as the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies. You can find out about our work at newmanstudies.org. And yes, two baseball teams, Bo. This time I next mean, week, COVID, they, if 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 COVID stays out of the way, you and I can be making fun of the Cubs again on air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's people who are really getting uh, into it, like uh, having countdown clocks and stuff like that. Do you? So, do you know? Is the Blue Jay things like a wrap? Like you're gonna have a two baseball team town in Pittsburgh? You know, I get most of my news through Twitterverse, which is <laughs> isn't a which reliable. Is absolutely, <laughs> obviously true. Every time you read it, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's not a reliable conduit, but from from what I'm reading there, it's it sounds like a done deal. And I was telling our good friend Ona, who was on the show a few weeks ago, that it'd be hilarious if um, in September fans are welcomed back to the stadium, and there are more fans at Blue Jays games than Pirates games. Well, because uh, they won't know. have trouble with social distancing at Pirates games. That's. I've heard that Pittsburgh has uh, decided that of the, the, the black and gold teams they're going to put up with shenanigans from, the Pirates are low on the list uh, nowadays. Yeah, the fan base is pretty cranky. I don't know. I mean, Major League Baseball is kind of a weird sport because you can make a lot of money with having a pretty terrible team. And so my I don't follow it real closely, but my humble opinion is that ownership is fine with their profit margins. And so not a lot of urgency to get like a – grade a baseball team on the field this is where this is where we're gonna get the real haters but i mean we were joking around we had one person like on twitter a single single person kind of criticizing the show i think they didn't like my jaws metaphor more than than anything else but you're gonna start bashing the pirates and now we really will have like people hating on us yeah i don't want to alienate i think we do have some pittsburgh listeners now so next week we'll have to start the show with um steelers talk and how amazing they're going to be this fall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds good. Well, we always start our show off with a uh, gratitude talk, and we want to say thank you to Mercy College of Health Sciences for underwriting our show, show mchs.edu. Uh, well into the middle of the summer semester, getting geared up for the fall semester that is approaching pretty quickly. mchs.edu to find out all the programs that you can look into. Uh, the different sort of courses and availabilities that we have. Also to make sure to keep up with how uh, Mercy is being attentive to the COVID situation, making sure that people are prepared to be the next wave of the healthcare industry to reach out to a community in need. Yeah, Bud, you, you just got done with uh, midterms here in your uh, servant leadership class a while ago, right? Yeah, that course is going good. And this Monday, I actually sat down on an academic council meeting by Zoom. And I think what struck me is Mercy's still trucking, not being slowed down by anything that's going on around us. So a lot of good things going on there. 
they had to like really tone, but you know, tone down the anti Bud Mar talk. They heard you were on, so I heard that that's that. They start out ten minutes each day talking about. No, it's actually all it's all nostalgia. They they tell a story. You're you're becoming a part of like the legend. They they tell a story about when Bud was here, and then they get on with their business. Yeah, it was like old times. You know, everyone got a chance to rib me and give me a hard time, so it felt like. <laughs> 2016 again. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. That seems like 40 years ago. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. At some point, we're going to have to have uh, like a physicist on, and they're going to explain to us how um, time no longer seems to work by the rules that it should and uh, see how that all works out. So um, real quick, real quick, though, I know you're kind of a movie buff. Do you have this experience these days where uh, Rachel and I are watching a movie on Tuesday night? And you see human beings interacting like pre twenty twenty, and there's a moment where you're like, ah, you know, like, stay away from each other. I don't know. Well, we we were watching a film, and two two bros came up and gave each other like the bro hug, and it it made me really anxious. That's well. So the movies, uh, social distance movie experience that I got to have, I took my most movie buff daughter Stella with me uh, to the drive-in that's over here outside of Des Moines. And they re-showed Empire Strikes Back, which is why she wanted to go. She's a big Star Wars fan. But there was also Jaws. And uh, not only was there not a lot of social distancing on the beach for Jaws, like if it was COVID, there also wasn't a lot of social distancing with the fact that they all knew there was a shark <laughs> that was causing all sorts of problems. So uh, I just think you would figure that they would be social distancing from the beach a lot sooner in the movie. And uh, yeah. yeah, like I said, I made well, a rem- remark about uh, people's yeah. uh, single-mindedness about certain things. So I guess Jaws is indicative of that. Jaws is a COVID parable, and I probably need to go back to that film. But um, that, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> that's right. We can have our we can have our Jaws episode later. Uh, on the show today, we have Dr. Uh, Kenneth Craycraft, who's going to come on and talk about religious liberty, both in the minds of the sort of. Uh, fathers of the united states but then the what we mean by the fathers of the church when we talk about the freedom of religion or religious liberty uh so it's going to be a wonderful talk that's going to really dig deep into some uh issues that i think are increasingly important as we rightfully talk about religious liberty as it comes up in the united states in the worldwide uh, arena but also what it means when we think about what true religious liberty and freedom is in the church so you'll want to stick around for this this is the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr. Uh, glad you're joining us this Wednesday, but we're going to stick around because we'll be back right after this. <laughs> Folks, if you have anything to tell us about our, you know, if you you don't really like sharks and we need to back off on the shark movie references, it's easy to let us know about your fears of sharks or fear of other things or otherwise or even positive comments. All you got to do is use the zip whip line. 515-223-1150, 515-223-1150, the zip with line. We can hear your recommendations. Uh, we can hear uh, comments you have the show, questions that you have for us, uh, other 80s and 70s movies that you think we need to reference to try to make metaphors out of. We'll try to do it if we can. The zip with line. 515-223-1150, 515-223-1150. Text and let us know what you're thinking of. You can also call the station and uh, get word about what's going on or even make donations that way. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back after these messages. 
What is the best gift ever? Well, some might say a Catholic education, and I agree. But if you think you can't afford Catholic education, think again. Apply for CTO, and you could receive up to half your tuition for kindergarten through 12th grade. More information is online, ctoiowa.org. The bottom line, it's for the kids and their future. This is Dr. David Anders, host of Call to Communion. Catholic Radio is the best tool we have for evangelization in the church today. I believe your support of your Catholic Radio station can make an eternal difference in the life of an individual, a family, and in society. So support Catholic Radio. Would you consider a $30 a month donation? Your support keeps Iowa Catholic Radio on the air, connecting people to Christ. You can give securely online at iowacatholicradio.com, the Iowa Catholic Radio app, or call 515-223-1150. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Be Not Afraid is provided by Dream Dirt Farm Real Estate and Auction. Learn more at DreamDirt.com, including their online auction house, FarmBid, at bid.dreamdirt.com. Dream Dirt Farm and Equipment Auction Services, farm auctions done right. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and John Leonetti in the Morning is provided by Five Sons Naturescapes. Five Sons Naturescapes is a Catholic veteran-owned family company providing premium outdoor landscaping. Learn more about Five Sons Naturescapes at fivesonsnaturescapes.com. fivesonsnaturescapes.com. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio was provided by Corel Contractor, serving Des Moines site work construction needs for over 60 years. Find out how you can support Iowa Catholic Radio at iowacatholicradio.com or 515-223-1150. Thank you, Ashworth Vision Clinic, for underwriting Dowling Catholic Sports 365 on Iowa Catholic Radio. Ashworth Vision Clinic online at ashworthvision.com. Ashworth Vision Clinic, 515-440-4610. We're back with the Uncommon Good. Bob Bonner and Dr. Budmar joining you this Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the show. We love to have you part of our outreach to talk about the common good and all the issues surrounding such with the church. Glad that you can have us with us. Today on the show, we have Dr. Kenneth Craycraft, an attorney and the James J. Gardner Family Chair of Moral Theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology. He holds a PhD in Moral Theology from Boston College, a JD from Duke University School of Law. He also writes a Closer Look column for the Catholic Telegraph, the monthly magazine of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. Ken, thank you for coming on the show. Well, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, what what comes to mind uh, is why we have you on the show talking about religious freedom. On one hand, it's July. We started out July with July 4th. Um, you have a wonderful uh, article that people can go look on the Catholic Telegraph, A Closer Look, Religious Freedom is Rooted in Duty, Not Rights, uh, that you put out right before the July 4th holiday uh, you know, maybe you were, you know, getting all prepared with the illegal fireworks that were uh, <laughs> e- that everybody in the nation was getting ready. You also have a book, The American Myth of Religious Freedom, uh, that people uh, can check out if they want to. But this idea of what do we mean when we talk about religious freedom or religious liberty, increasingly a topic that comes up not only um, abroad when we think of places that uh, the, the plight of Christians and the ability for people to worship freely uh, seems to be in the news more and more. Uh, but, but also in the United States, what do we mean by the free exercise of religion and things like this? So, Ken, I think maybe to start off with, in your mind, when people hear religious liberty, 
and what they think of that means in the American context. You talk about a myth both in your book and in your article. What, what's the myth in, in brief, uh, the myth of religious liberty and freedom? Well, the briefest way that I could uh, describe what I mean by the myth of religious liberty is perhaps to say that there is an understanding that th there is available in some sense a way to establish religious freedom such that everyone enjoys the same uh, level of religious freedom and that no one's religious freedom is uh, can be is impinged. Th there's a myth that, that there is a... Uh, politically and morally neutral set of standards that can be implemented such that that everybody experiences religious freedom in the same way. And that's a powerful story. Myth also has, you know, myth has stories and legends and so forth that are built up around them to, to help to uh, make people believe them and to carry them out. It's a powerful story, but it simply isn't true. Uh, it isn't. It simply isn't the case that there can be any political regime that is completely neutral toward religion. Someone's, as my professor uh, from Boston College, Ernest Borden, was fond of saying, "Someone's ox is always going to be gored." <laughs> but in the U.S., in the U.S., we we do have this myth, and it's subscribed to by from a broad range of people. Now. They, they think that it has different uh, manifestations and that it should result in different kinds of social institutions and structures. But from the, the secular left to the religious right, there is a, a broad subscription to this basic myth. Uh, what we, the, the reason that, that, it's, that it simply isn't true, or, or I should say evidence that it simply isn't true, uh, is, is manifest in the way that these people from the secular left to the religious right uh, disagree about how religious freedom should be implemented and and how it should be exercised or not exercised in the public square. So you have you have on the one hand religious believers who believe that America is a land of religious freedom in which they we should be allowed to exercise our religious belief without impingement from the state or from other people. And on the other hand, we have the secular left, which says that we should be free from exercising religion, but also free from in any in any way, shape, or form being influenced by or lorded over by, or even uh, uh, even you know having to tolerate the presence of religious belief in the public square. Both of these attitudes are born from the same myth. That is that there is a a a, a, a uh, an epistemologically privileged political philosophy that can establish complete neutrality uh, on the, uh, within the state, and therefore the laws and institutions can be consistent with that. And we see in the religious uh, strife in the U.S. that that simply isn't true. So the question then becomes, what, what, what does religious freedom, how does religious freedom manifest across the spectrum of different kinds of beliefs? And more importantly, how can we recover a truly authentically Catholic understanding of religious freedom? First of all, within the context of speaking with one another, sort of a, an ecclesiological definition, and then uh, witness to that definition to the broader public. And I think that the, the way, I mean, first of all, that is a very succinct way, way to put that. I think we should just uh, package that last uh, bit here. <laughs> that, that was really good. And, and I think precisely that this goes back to the fact that all of the words involved in our discussion can have radically different meanings, not only to different people, but also just within the church and the discussion of those words throughout time, religious liberty. So what, 
what what is religion primarily you know in in the sort of uh thoughtscape of people today and it, and it has to do with the stuff of prayer or we go to church right it's a set of beliefs the idea that religion used to be seen as like a group of people, right? The, the religious uh, as opposed to the laity or, or the, you know, or, or even going back further and that religion is at the heart of justice, right? That religion right. Is, is, is that, that, that realm of justice owed to God. You start to talk about the differences and the, the layers about what we mean with the word religion. Then you go over to liberty where it, it uh, funny enough, it's probably even more of the wild west make a bad pun about what we mean what does it mean to be free to do things or free from things i think the very nature of of the term uh can be broken down into extremely important discussion points but for whatever reason we put the two words together religious liberty or religious freedom and like you said there's an assumption that there's this package deal that we all agree on until we actually get into the details yeah, it, it's very well, very well said. I mean, we're all familiar with the what, whether what, whether we call it the incommensurability thesis or whatever we call it. Basically, you know, we're, we are we are in a post Alistair McIntyre world, and or in a an, or in an Alistair McIntyre world, and and so we we recognize it's almost a given that we recognize the problem of the incommensurability of moral languages across. Uh, across traditions, whether they be linguistic traditions, and and recognizing that does not in any way uh, commit us to any kind of, uh, of relativism or or subjectivism. Obviously, there is a subjectivist element to to many many uh, uh, rationalities of discourse that are out there competing among these incommensurate languages. But when we think about uh, when we think about the inability to communicate what we mean by freedom or by religion, one of the things I tell my students is what, we, what we're doing there is we're giving reasons for what we believe and, and therefore trying to make a rational argument. But if the person that we're speaking with doesn't agree that what we believe are reasons are truly reasons, then we sound irrational and they sound irrational to us because that's what a rational argument is two interlocutors agreeing on what counts as a reason to do or say or, or hold something. And if the, if one of the interlocutors doesn't even uh, agree that it's ra- that that is a reason to believe or hold or uh, this position, then we have a breakdown in rational uh, language in the fr- at the very outset. And that's exactly what we see when we talk about religious freedom. You know, I, I believe that with even Wall and others, that all conflict is ultimately theological and, and all politics is ultimately theological, which is to say that you can't separate theological, at least theological positions from any kind of political regime or any kind of regime of laws. The law has to take account of religion. The question is, what account of religion does it take? And therefore, all laws and all political regimes necessarily are religious the question isn't whether or not they're religious. That's a given. The question is what they do with religion. And that's where, and that's where the conflict begins. So you're, you're exactly right. We, if we can't even uh, agree with, what, uh, with one another uh, across these incommensurate linguistic communities, if you want to call them that, what counts as freedom or what counts as religion, then it's a very, very difficult to have conversations. To make and it my worse, own. we have – go ahead, no, please keep going to make it worse. Sorry about that. 
<laughs> to make it worse, we have in the U.S. we have a, uh, a Supreme Court jurisprudence which is hopelessly muddled and confused and confusing, issuing contradictory opinions or opinions which are going to be contradicted contradicted uh, down the road because they uh, adhere to different ways of thinking about religious freedom. And we can perhaps talk about this term, in fact, as a perfect example of what's going to happen. Uh, uh, this this Supreme Court term on several opinions that impinge upon or that speak to religious liberty either directly or indirectly, but which are which set which set the tone for a next term and terms that follow for some very serious conflict, both in pop popular culture and in um, and jurisprudence, First Amendment or religious freedom jurisprudence. Ken, my apologies for trying to jump in there too quickly, uh, Bud Mar. No my own. My my own area of expertise is the theology of St. John Henry Newman, and uh, religious liberty is one of the locus classicus for this idea of development of doctrine, which he wrote so much about. Uh, I, I was wondering, so, you know, you'll sometimes hear, I think maybe uh, from those outside the church who um, are concerned about her influence on culture or politics, they'll say, like, the Catholic Church pre- uh, 1960s, it was completely opposed to this idea. And you look at the the papal magisterium from like Pius the Ninth until Pius the Twelfth, and all these condemnations of religious liberty. And then at Vatican II, something very different happens. And now, um, especially in American Catholicism, you'll get these movements on the parts of bishops, um, like the Fortnite for Freedom. And I think to some non-Catholic, it feels kind of like a sleight of hand, like. It was convenient for the church to be in this place for a time. And then when it felt itself embattled or maybe in a minority status that it flipped. And I was wondering if you could talk to our listeners about uh, how do we think about the history of this teaching and the idea of development of doctrine when it comes to uh, especially what popes have said across time about these issues. Yeah, well, I, 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 first of all, as as far as dignitatis humanae personae goes, that is the the Vatican the Vatican II Declaration on Religious Liberty. Um, I, in my generous moments, I say that there is some very significant tension within the document that is very difficult to work through. In my less generous <laughs> moments, I say that there is some contradiction going on there. Um, and, and I think that it, 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 but I'm generous, I'm feeling generous today. So there's, there's tension in it. And the tension is manifest in the way that you even pose the question. To be sure, we, we do have, and, and I can also understand why people would take the position that now that, you know, especially in the U.S. when Catholics were a minority and they needed the protection of, of, uh, of vigorous protection of religious liberty, uh, which, uh, which was uh, threatened not just on the popular level, but even on the legal level by things like Blaine Amendments uh, in, in state constitutions and so forth, and therefore, you know, champion religious liberty when it was convenient for us, but were not so hot about it when like in Catholic Europe or what have you, I, I think the I think the issue here goes to what we mean by where we seat religious liberty. Is it seated in the subjective individual, or is it seated in the church as an institution? And we can we can argue that religious freedom is seated in the church as an institution, and still have a broad provision for the rights of non-Catholic Christians or non-Christians or anyone else 
to have a free exercise of, of conscience and, and therefore to the freedom to dissent uh, because the freedom of the church itself is rooted in the dignity of the human person. So I, my, you know more about the development of the doctrine of religious liberty than I do, to be sure. And of, co- and of course, you know much more about Newman's own uh, development, uh, notion of development. But if you take the, Num- the, the Newman, Newman's idea of the idea, you take Newman's idea of the idea. And if the idea is of freedom of religion is the freedom of the church to exercise its role, to name its mission and to, and to execute that mission is the way that I like to put it. So that we have to understand the freedom of the churches as the church's freedom to name its mission without impingement from the state and to exercise that impingement, that freedom without impingement from the state. Now, Dignitatis Humanae even goes so far as to say that that nothing it, nothing is inconsistent with religious freedom if a state even assists the church in that mission, um, which which is an under underlooked passage. But if we take that basic idea, that idea can persist both in a regime that allows a broad range of dissent uh, and, and that is more pluralistic and one that is less pluralistic and more that looks more like a confessional state. Now, I'm not advocating a confessional state, but I am saying that dignitatis humanae personae does not preclude the possibility of legitimacy within the document itself of a confessional state. That obviously isn't going to happen in North America. Um, Something like that seems to be, or more like that seems to be happening in some parts of Europe, perhaps Poland, perhaps Hungary. But the fact is, the idea of religious liberty seated in the church um, doesn't preclude, and I don't believe ever has precluded, the possibility of dissent. Now, uh, we could, obviously, historians can will, will write all kinds of uh, objections that well, whether it does or doesn't, the fact is that you know non-Catholic Christians face times of difficulty, to put it mildly, uh, when Catholics were in charge. But that actually brings us to a more basic and, and, and important question. Um, and, and that has to do with, with what, what, what we do with political authority and what the relation of the church is to political authority, which is a slightly different question, of course, than uh, the question of religious liberty. I, I know that was probably a long answer that wasn't even an answer, but uh, that's sort of the way that I would react to it. No, can, I mean, I actually think uh, the, what starts to be interesting about the whole discussion is um, the fact of the matter illustrates your point. What I mean by this is, um, so Dr. Russell Hittinger, big influence on my, my life, when he talks about dignitates humanae, he's, he's usually pointing out the sort of way in which Catholic social teaching doesn't come down from the skies as a sort of fully formed system. It's a mu- much more like, St. Paul talking about different situations, right? This is what Corinth is going through. This is what Galatians is going through. It's not that any of it contradicts, but certainly the different letters have different emphasis. So you look yes. through the history, right? Like, so Pius the Ninth, who is a prisoner in the Vatican, has uh, very different uh, social realities that he's addressing. Leo the Thirteenth, we go through, right? Up until we get Dignitate Humanae, which is really talking about... Um, you know, post-communist Europe um, after everything that happened with World War II. Um, but Americans, and, and, you know, not like to sort of like make this like a, an, it invalidates how we think about things, but when we talk about liberty and freedom, it's the one, we have a stunning ability to mean it in a completely individualistic way, but then also a completely idealistic, universalist way. 
right? So like liberty and freedom is either like what I want to do right now, you know, <laughs> wh- which bag of Skittles I should buy, or yep. it's uh, this, you know, this this t- this topic that is just sort of spiritual in a platonic form. This idea that there's going to be nuances talking about depending what you're doing because the church itself is a, a living society that has to address these things. Um, I think that that is something that that can make it sound like, you know, Bud was pointing out that we're, we can be shifty because the circumstances come up, um, but it's actually being honest about being a living community throughout time, responding to things. We, we only have uh, two minutes before we hit the break, but um, I guess just on that note, do you think that that sometimes is some of the difficulty you have uh, when you're talking to people about this concept? Oh, I certainly do. Because I mean, there, no matter, no matter how we look at the issue, we're always going to be looking at it from, from a perspective, as I and I tell my students, there's no such thing as a as an abstract morality. I mean, we can talk about moral theories and moral foundations and and fundamental uh, moral notions, but the fact is, when it comes down to our moral lives, m- morality is about human action, and human action is always going to be perspectival. Again, this doesn't commit us to any kind of relativism, but the fact is, we make moral decisions from certain perspectives, the perspectives that we can see. And so when we think about religious freedom, uh, it it always is going to be uh, affected by, if not even sometimes over-determined by the particularities of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So the question for us as Catholic moral agents is how we use our moral agency, not to change what we can't change, but rather to uh, to take those contingencies, apply moral agency to those contingencies, and to 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 mold a consistent uh, uh, ethic of religious liberty or freedom more generally, such that we are we're consistent and and uh, thinking with the church on the one hand, but on the other hand, also taking into consideration the contingencies that are thrust upon us. So our moral agency isn't simply about the ability to choose A instead of B, but rather upon, but rather what we do when we would prefer A, but instead we have B, what do we do with B? And that's where, that's where we think about um, perspective and, and, uh, and contingency and so forth. And, and that's the, that's the, that there, there's where we find true liberty, not, not the, not when we're frustrated that we can't choose A, but when we can't choose A and B is thrust upon us, how we use our agency to incorporate that into an understanding of the Catholic moral line. Oh, this is fascinating stuff. I'm so glad that uh, we're getting to dive into this here, you know, like I said, in, in July, uh, you know, for people to think about. Uh, this is the Uncommon Good. Bob Bonner, Dr. Bud Mar, speaking with Dr. Kenneth Craycraft. We'll be back right after these messages. Folks, if you want to keep up with what's going on at Iowa Catholic Radio, it's easy to do so. All you have to do is be a part of our social media. You can go online to iowacatholicradio.com. There you can listen online. Uh, you can donate. You can sign up for newsletters. If you want to go the Facebook route, go to Facebook. Type in Iowa Catholic Radio and befriend us. And through the miracle of Zuckerberg uh, technology, you'll be able to be friends with us and see posts that we post. You can also go to Twitter at IA Catholic Radio. And then you will be prone to hearing, uh, privy is what I meant, all the tweets that you would uh, that your hearts desire from here at Iowa Catholic Radio. And then finally, if you have the Iowa Catholic Radio app, anywhere that you have data, you can stream live what's happening there. Also donate and check out things as well. So we got the whole thing arranged for you. Go follow us on social media. 
We'd love to have you there. This is the Uncommon Good, and we'll be back right after this. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio is provided by the Iowa ENT Center, expert ear, nose, and throat care for adults and children. Find out how you can support Iowa Catholic Radio at iowacatholicradio.com or 515-223-1150. Managing finances can be difficult to the point where our lives are no longer peaceful. Through a grant from the Iowa Division of Insurance, Financial Literacy is an unbiased financial education program that is engaging, empowering, motivating, and available for free. Learn more at iowacatholicradio.com. Thank you, Big Red Q Quick Print, for underwriting the sports report. Family owned and operated since 1980, Big Red Q Quick Print is a full-service print shop, ready to help you with all your printing needs with speed and accuracy. BigRedQ-DesMoines.com. Here's your forecast on Iowa Catholic Radio. Looks fair and warm for the afternoon. We'll get sunshine and our high around 85. Clear tonight down to the mid-60s. Another sunny day coming up tomorrow and Friday, upper 80s and low 90s. The weather is brought to you by Rock Valley Physical Therapy. Outstanding outpatient physical therapy and sports medicine rehabilitation with seven convenient locations in the Des Moines metro and southwest Iowa area. I'm meteorologist Steve Hamilton on Iowa Catholic Radio. There are millions of children that go hungry every day. Thank you to Skeffington's Formalware for supporting Mary's Meals. Their vision is that every child in the world should be able to receive at least one good meal every day in a place of education. Mary'sMealsUSA.org Thanks to Blessman International for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Every year, Blessman International leads teams of Central Iowans to share the compassionate heart of Christ with orphans and vulnerable children in South Africa. You can learn more and sign up for a trip at blessmaninternational.org. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Be Not Afraid is provided by Dream Dirt Farm Real Estate and Auction. Learn more at dreamdirt.com, including their online auction house, Farm Bid, at bid.dreamdirt.com. Dream Dirt Farm and Equipment Auction Services, farm auctions done right. Back with the Uncommon Good, Bob Bonner and Dr. Bud Mar joining you this Wednesday. Thank you for coming and listening to the show. We love having you here. On the show today, we have Dr. Kenneth Craycraft, attorney, and James J. Gardner, family chair of moral theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology. PhD in Moral Theology from Boston College, JD from Duke University School of Law. Uh, you can check out his work at A Closer Look. Uh, that's on the thecatholictelegraph.com. And he wrote the book, The American Myth of Religious Freedom, which is right in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about today. Ken, thank you for coming on the show again. Oh, thanks again for having me. I'm enjoying it. So, Ken, you know, religious liberty, I, I, I mean, I'm frankly amazed about uh, how we were able to really cover uh, a lot of the basics in 20 minutes. Uh, I, I really, the, the answers you gave, I, people should go back and listen to on our podcast if they have any questions about that, about the basics. What I think this sort of ends up when the rubber hits the road is people want to ask, okay, so what ramifications does that start to look like for Catholics uh, in day-to-day life in, in 2020, mm-hmm. um, you know, is this something that, you know, you, you guys who read too many books are like worried about, and this really doesn't have any sort of implications for us. Um, oftentimes when religious liberty ends up being told, like this is an issue that parishioners care about um, to, to not try to put it too maliciously, it can sound like uh, a setup to then be like, so here's this candidate you should follow, or here's this political program, or here's this party. Um, in, in your work in this field, I guess the, the first question is, what do we hope 
Catholics who, okay, now maybe I have a better understanding that, that our understanding of religious liberty doesn't match, at, at least doesn't match perfectly, if not more uh, <laughs> adversarial than that, the sort of yeah. myth that goes on about it. What, what do we see as practical steps forward? Like, oh, now as a parishioner who knows this, my life will be different. How? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and actually, I want to go underneath the question just a little bit before I try to address it directly. And that is the, the very problem of Catholics thinking in terms of, uh, of a, with a Catholic vocabulary and a Catholic rationality. One of the problems with, with the um, what I call the liberal myth of religious freedom is that we, we Catholics, and I say this even about myself because we all have these tendencies, as I tell my students, we get liberalism with our mother's milk. And even cradle Catholics oftentimes are, are raised in such a way that without even realizing it, our moral impulses are more formed by the stories and myths of liberalism than they are by the stories and myths of Catholicism. And, and, and unfortunately, that affects the way that we think not just about political freedom, but also freedom within the church. So we, we, we tend to bring this idea of this radical individual, subjective individualist notion of religious freedom, even into the church, which of course, in the, within the church, we call that dissent, uh, or which gives rise to what we call, you know, cafeteria Catholics and, and, and so forth. So, so the first task, and, and I take this, I take this as sort of the part of the, the, the broad new evangelization that we talk about so much in which in my archdiocese of Cincinnati, our archbishop is very strongly committed to and, and to his credit is first of all, doing exactly that, trying to, and I do with my students and I hope my, my seminary students take this to their parishes, first of all, trying to get us Catholics to speak Catholic and to think Catholic to one another and therefore to be a witness to the broader community. Now, let's, you know, imagine that that we are able to make some headway in that category in the first place, so that we think more about the freedom of the church, then how does that apply in the broader community? Well, first of all, when we think about the freedom of the church and the freedom of the individual, we always have to recognize and remember that there isn't any, that, that religion itself is a virtue. So the practice of religion is the practice of virtue. And virtue requires the ability to to make the make the wrong choice. In order to be truly virtuous or to make a moral decision, we have to be free not to make that decision. We can't be coerced. We can't make it out of fear and all of those other things that St. Thomas uh, called the enemies of voluntariness. So it has to be free and voluntary. And that's a staple of Catholic thought. That doesn't commit us to any kind of subjectivist notion or individualist notion of religious freedom, but it does tell us that in order to make an authentic moral choice, the choice has to be free. And therefore, as Catholics, using the, the language of Catholic morality, not of liberal political theory, but of Catholic morality, we recognize that the virtue of religion requires the ability to make an, a, a free choice, a free a choice that's unconstrained by fear, coercion, passion, and so forth. And if we if we can even learn to do that, that gives us an ability to speak in the public arena that's very different from the way that we we typically speak now. And it also gives us the foundation for a, a broader, and I believe, more hopeful understanding of religious liberty, because it isn't about the freedom not to believe, but rather it's about the moral dignity of the person for whom the ability to make the choice is itself a part of the moral fabric of religious liberty. So 
when we think about, so for example, you know, a, a person, and, and, and then the second part of your question is, when we think about partisan politics and religious freedom, one of the things that worries me the most, uh, and, and, I, and I worry about this all the time, actually, is the way that we Catholics tend to define our moral lives, even not even by, uh, by uh, political liberalism, but rather by partisan identification. And, and I know, you know, uh, though I, I know you a little bit better than I know, Bud, but I know that, that you are attuned to resisting the uh, identification with one party or the other because a Catholic social doctrine simply, simply doesn't fit with one party or the other. And therefore, even though we might find ourselves agreeing with the poly- policy positions of one party or another, we have to strongly resist being identified with that party as partisan. So I tell my students, I want you to be Catholic social doctrine Catholics, not liberal Catholics or conservative or Democrat or Republican, but Catholic social doctrine Catholics. And that applies to the way we speak, uh, we think and speak about religious liberty, because it's rooted not in the uh, a subjective individualist notion, but rather in the very idea that religion itself is a virtue, which requires the ability to pers- of the person to to uh, to act freely. And then when we think about the church, we think about the church as this institution, which again is permitted to name its mission to, and to execute that, that mission and w- without impingement from uh, from forces outside it. If, if Catholics can start thinking about religious freedom in those two ways, I think it can have both a salutary effect on the way that Catholics worship and, and pray and that the way, and secondly, the way that the church witnesses to the broader public, the non-Catholic or non-Christian public, about a more hopeful way of thinking about religious liberty, which preserves w- what we sometimes what we what we call political freedom, but which also sustains in a more hopeful and um, and foundational way a, a truly and authentically. Uh, Catholic idea of religious liberty rooted in principles of Catholic social doctrine. Ken, when I first started studying some of these issues and reading figures like uh, John Milbank and Stanley Harawas, what what blew my mind was um, kind of the demythologizing of that story that we you've been saying liberalism tells, and especially this idea that you know there's not there's just simply not this realm this secular realm that's cordoned off from superstition. And that's morally right. neutral, where everyone can sort of pursue their own understanding of happiness without bumping into each other. This actually, right. funny enough, uh, came up. Um, I was doing some social distance socializing a couple weeks ago over some pints, and I was talking about some of these matters. And uh, it, uh, I, th- those, I must have been doing a poor job because those around me, like what they heard or what their concerns were, was um, doesn't this inevitably slide into like theocracy or fascism. Maybe I come off as a fascist yeah. in social circles, but uh, <laughs> like as you as you talk about these things with students and maybe like Catholics in the pews, what do you say when um, the response is sort of like, well, you know, the virtue of liberalism is that we don't get, I don't know, whichever boogeyman in the past, yeah. like Frank or Mussolini or whatever. Yeah. Well, so, well, well, first of all, I mean, there are two ways of, of addressing the question. The first one is to, to address the last thing that you said, that the fact is, uh, it's becoming manifest that we are seeing liberalism becoming, becoming something like, uh, you know, a, a, or at least 
having tendencies or what's the word I want symptoms uh, that looks <laughs> that look a lot like more like fascism than liberalism. I mean, you know, the 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 the, the cancel culture and so forth. All, all of this stuff is is from the left. It is it, these are these are these are you know this is these are liberal values that are becoming manifest in this so called cancel culture. So. But but that but that point actually is an important one in going to the other part uh, of the answer to your question, and that is, and this is the myth that really needs to be exploded in the, in the most profound way that that liberalism, that political liberalism, is a neutral set of religious or, or of political principles, and that simply is not true. So you you mentioned Milbank and and uh, and Harawas and Harawas's. Had a, had a tremendous influence on my own uh, development and thought, and he's a good friend. I, you know, also Adrian Vermeule at the Harvard Law School has written on this uh, lately, and 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 others as well. And the point is this: there is no such thing as liberalism. Uh, Stanley Fish wrote a book many years ago called said called "There's No Such Thing as Free Speech," and it's a good thing too. Uh, the last chapter of my book, I forget exactly the title, but I call it something like there's no such thing as religious freedom. I think that's what it is. And, and, and I could even make it broader and say that there's no such thing as liberalism. Liberalism by its own definition doesn't exist. That is to say there isn't any such thing as a neutral set of religious, of purely procedural political principles which which don't have any view of the common good because that itself is a view of the common good. Now it's a perverse, truncated, and and highly deficient view of the common good. But there isn't any such thing as a set of political principles that don't have in view some collective or some common good. The common good might be might be a, a, a the vision of common good might be faulty, but it's there. Which is also which is another way of saying that there is that all political philosophy, including political liberalism, is a substantive view of the good. And so to go back to your question, we're not, when, when, when we say that we, perf- we think that a Catholic vision of the good would be a better way for society to function, we're not saying anything different from someone like Locke or Madison or Jefferson when they say a liberal conception of the good. Now, of course, they won't say a liberal conception of the good but in fact, that's exactly what is being instituted. And so, so what I would say is that it isn't any different. Uh, it isn't any different in, in its theoretical foundations. It's only different in the good that uh, fills uh, the, the, the so-called void, um, because there is no void. Every politics, every political theory has a view of the good, including, and most importantly, including uh, liberalism. You know, Ken, this is probably way too big of a, a bag of worms to open up. Uh, we only have about six or so minutes. But what's funny, where I start seeing weird overlaps with this sort of stuff. So liberalism, you know, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, all of us had him as a professor. You know, liberalism is the story you tell yourself when you say you have no story. And right. and, and yep. you see you see that uh, with and when we mean liberal, we do not mean Democrats. Democrats, Republicans, this is a shared myth that there's Correct. this sort of, like you said, this this neutral bureaucratic artifice that then allows us to pursue these other things in the quote unquote private sphere. And so you get this this notion of the good that that tries to hide its notion of the good behind a neutrality, a bureaucratic mm-hmm. neutrality. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, what 
the you know if you think about this just throwing out three other sort of visions of the good there's countless more but just to throw them out the catholic one the communist one and the fascist one funny enough liberalism shares with fascism an appeal to a neutrality or a naturalism because the fascists all say well this is just the people right this is the vox populi or this is like this is uh the the natural way that the the german people act or the this people that or that um it's weirdly enough the catholics and the communists will at least admit that like no we're, we're we're trying to take over because there's a substantive good that we think that you have to fight over and so it starts to be interesting right that if you start to look through history that a lot of fascist regimes are preceded not by Catholic or communist ones, but by liberal regimes because of how people, how powerful and potent the neutrality myth is. So I'm not trying to say that liberals end up being fascist. I know that that would be like truly like throwing a lot of uh, gasoline on the fire, but just so people don't think that like, there's not a cost to the neutrality. It's true that for a while, when you have a sort of neutral myth, you know, you can do live and let live for a while, but it ends up being live or let die because these conflicts, as we are starting to see, can't be hidden forever. And I, like yeah. I said, I, I know we have like four minutes left, so that's a huge topic, but I, I think that's part of the importance of trying to get Catholics to see this. So that listeners aren't confused and, and and don't get upset by it. And and when I when I talk about liberalism, I'm talking about the political philosophy that's held by the most conservative uh, Republican all the way to the most liberal Democrat. That's what I mean when I say liberalism. When I say liberalism or liberals, I'm not talking about adherence to or members of the Democratic Party. I'm talking about the this American ethos that that is agreed to for, across that spectrum. So that's that's the first thing. And the second thing is you're exactly right. And, and this is the problem. Liberalism is a story that that is simply not compatible with or consistent with the way that that we live our practical moral lives. And and because we don't live our lives and as though there is a, as though that the, there's a neutral principle. We don't live our lives if we take, you know, Rawls take Rawls as the quintessential liberal with his with his veil of ignorance. Y- yes, it's a wonderful ivory tower moral uh, experiment, but the fact is that's not how we live our moral lives. And when we think about neutral sets of procedures by which we are allowed that any vision of the good is allowed to flourish. That, that's that that simply is not it's not it's simply not the way that we live we have moral commitments that transcend this i think it was alice mcintyre who said that you know dying for liberal liberalism is like dying for the telephone company or something like that we we our moral commitments are much thicker than that and our thick moral commitments uh resist n- n- notions of uh political neutrality even while we champion philosophies of political neutrality because we do live thickly constituted lives we don't live uh, simply bureaucratic lives and and when we want to exercise that those thickly constituted lives in the public arena then liberalism finds itself wanting 
And at, you know, to, to put it in in the in the uh, in the uh, the way of a, of a very popular book over the last couple of years, at least popular in, in academic circles, why liberalism failed. Part of Patrick Deneen's thesis is precisely that that the the way that we constitute our lives simply isn't consistent with the note these notions of uh, political neutrality in which any vision of the good is able to flourish without uh, without any kind of um, nod to or uh, or um, acknowledgement of uh, the, the thickly constituted ways that, that our moral lives are ordered. And I think folks, you know, we're, we're ending up here, but th- this, what's important to realize, and this, this is setting off a, a sort of like bigger history. It, we're sort of throwing back to what uh, Brandon McGinley brought up on the show last week. Um, a lot of this is not like, Oh, well the Catholics see this clearly. And then this is what these liberals are off doing. This is part and parcel about how a lot of the church has operated for decades because the church in America, so worried about being in their Catholic ghettos, really sold, you know, their birthright for pottage in order to be able to like, okay, well, we'll, yes. be, neutral, we'll be neutral too if we get uh, uh, to play the game. And we're living through the bill, you know, coming yes. to you. Amen. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. and so, folks, you're going to have to be okay with people not liking some of your contention of what the good life is. There, There is not a future where we can have a substantive discussion with all these different groups and, and remain Catholic and not cause friction. And and so that's that, that to me, even just in, in the American life, right? When people, sometimes I think people castigate uh, different groups because they, they're bringing up uncomfortable conversations. This goes from BLM all the way up to like, discussions about COVID, but the way forward, folks, is to be able to bear the cross of those difficulties, not retreat back into this neutrality that's never existed. Ken, we've run out of time. This is fantastic. We're going to have to have you back on the show soon because there's so much more to talk about. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was great to be here. That's Dr. Kenneth Craycraft, attorney uh, and James Gardner, family chair of moral theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology. You can check out his work at the Catholic Telegraph. He writes uh, the a closer look uh, um, essays for that. And then also, like we said, his book is The American Myth of Religious Freedom. Folks, this is The Uncommon Good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, our families, our city, our state the world, the solar system, the galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. But if people want to join with us to pray uh, for our intentions, for the radio station, and for everything going on in the news right now, how can they join up with the rest of the Iowa Catholic Radio family to pray? Yeah, please join us in prayer daily. Uh, We pray the rosary together at 5.30 a.m., 9.30 a.m., and 9.30 p.m. Uh, also, the Angelus is at 6 in the morning, and all of those prayer opportunities are available anytime on the Iowa Catholic Radio app. And then we want to thank you for listening, and we want you to make sure that we realize that Iowa Catholic Radio is not just a set of people on air talking about whatever they want to. It is a family. It is a mission. It is a apostolate that we're all in together. It's not just the people on the airwaves. It's not just the people behind the boards who do a great job. Not only the people in the offices that keep everything running, but certainly 
It has everything to do with you. You guys, your prayers, your donations, you make Iowa Catholic Radio happen. You allow this wonderful word of Christ to reach people 24-7 through walls. Folks, this is the very stuff of what we're supposed to do. And in these times of COVID, nonprofits have difficulties staying afloat. We want to thank everybody who's made us be able to march forward. We appreciate it very much, but we still are in need of your prayers and your donations. So you can go to iowacatholicradio.com. You can go on the Iowa Catholic Radio, uh, the Iowa Catholic Radio app. You can call 515-223-1150, all those places to speak with people about being able to donate, see ways you can volunteer. Folks, keep us in your prayers. We love having you around. Bud, you enjoy your summer with, the, you know, like the 18 baseball teams or whatever you have out there, buddy. Hey, we're just recruiting as many as we can. There's got to be a winner in the bunch somewhere. <laughs> and by the way, uh, congratulations on your, your uh, newborn uh, being uh, baptized. And then uh, I think you've had like a rash of birthdays. You guys are probably eating so much cake, you're tired of it. It's dangerous. But yeah, happy second birthday to CJ. Love you, buddy. Yeah. All right, folks, this is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good.